0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at BTOfer at Today's guest is Thomas Hubka, a returning author who we spoke with earlier this year. Today he's here to talk about his book, Big House, Little House, Back House, Barn. Thomas is Professor Emeritus of Architecture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and author of books such as Resplendent Synagogue, Houses Without Names, and How the Working Class Home Became Modern which we talked about earlier this year, and has gone on to win the Book of the Year Award from the Vernacular Architectural Forum. Thomas, thank you for being here with me again, and welcome back to the show. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell any of our new listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, architecture professor for
0: 50 years,
1: and um, uh, but I started uh, my research in New England, and this is where my first book, Big House, Little House, Back House, Barn, came from. Um, and I started as an architect, uh, um, bushy-tailed and, and wanting to do architecture, but I started to look at the houses and farms of, in New England as I did uh, beginning practice uh, in New England. And I got hooked, and I became a, a would-be historian of sorts, and um, uh, since then I, 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 I write books and I um, uh, look at older, older architecture.
0: Great. And so before we kind of jump into it, even though the title kind of is pretty succinct and gives a lot of it away, I was wondering if you could walk some of our listeners through the basic organization of the building type that we're going to be talking about today.
1: Okay. Uh, throughout uh, northern New England, mostly uh, you know above Massachusetts Turnpike, if you want to think about it that way, um, the farms of the northern New England um, have a unique characteristic, and that's where the house and the barn. Are connected together by a variety of buildings and sheds together. So uh, from the early uh, interviews uh, of of farmers uh, now long gone, um, uh, a local expression defined this architectural um, organization. Big house, little house, back house, barn. Really a a child's rhyme in some ways, but um, uh, it's the formula that uh, most farmers use. uh, A template, a mental template or organizing their farms. Um, the big discovery of my research was that this is not an ancient tradition. And that's what it, se- it seems like. Everything in New England is old Yankee. Well, I, what we find is that what I found through in- investigating thousands of, of farmsteads and documentation and uh, analyzing hundreds of, of existing farms, is that this organization of of connecting the house and the barn together is relatively new in historical time, um, uh, concocted by about 1840, uh, just before the Civil War in some ways. And then the big period of construction of these buildings, 80-90% of these of uh, connected farms were connected together or built as a connected farm between 1850 and 1800, a 50-year threshold. Knowing that, you'd have to say, why did they connect their house in the barn during this relatively short period? (laughs) He's going to ask the question, why did they connect their house in the barn together? And the answer to that, as told by thousands of farmers, uh, to me uh, and every tourist that I, I know uh, in New England repeats the story of the old ancient Yankee winters as hard and tough, and the wise old farmers connected their houses together to walk between the house and the barn in a covered passageway to milk their cows. Cracking good story, nothing wrong with that. And my research suggests that it, that these farmers did not do this during this relatively short period, 1850 to 1900, uh, because it got colder, or they suddenly, they got colder and wanted to uh, limp between their house and the barn together. Uh, this is not the explanation. I To summarize, I would say they modernized. They were, and they modernized because they were under attack. They were losing their way of life um, through agricultural improvements in the rest of the country. We can get into some of that, why that. And they were losing their, their ability to farm. And they made a modest, reorganization of their farms toward a small farmstead organization, which is a little unusual because that's n- not what they did in Iowa or Minnesota or all the other places they competed against. But they, they, they were this small scale farming was thrust on them. And somehow and they made the best of it, and the connected farm is part of that modernization. Hard to articulate, better to tell the story <laughs> of connected farms uh, uh, as, as a winter idea. Okay.
0: Right, right, oh, not at all. And so it, it's funny because you had mentioned kind of hard to articulate. Uh, you know, for last time we spoke, a big challenge you had in that book, and I think you have the similar challenge here is it's there's very little documentation, and so you have a very difficult time trying to research this thing. And I don't know if that's something you just enjoy taking on. It's, it seems to be a common thing between both books. Um, vernacular architectural research or common architectural
1: research uh, is that that's. That's what happens. Uh, most people's buildings aren't recorded very well or often. The, the great architect right. is not underlined and, and all that. So it, it, it's t- typical research of common houses and then you have to then uh, numbers count. You know, I, I have to go through wide area uh, of New England and I have to then pinpoint, you know, areas where I can get information and interview hundreds of farmers about their construction. So. It's a, a grueling kind of process, and if you're not interested, <laughs> it's boring, um, but exciting in its own way. And uh, by doing that, you find out what most people did most of the time. And that, that's the, the history of what I'm um, recording. It's a popular history.
0: Yes, yeah, and so, yeah. you know, I know I, I actually worked and lived in Vermont for a year or two, and so I, I'm very familiar with this. But what's interesting, and you bring it up, is that for those who, aren't, who don't regularly go to New England – this typology kind of didn't really leave the area. Um,
1: that's a surprise, a surprise to geographers. I mean, you would say you, it, you know, uh, Garrison Keillor, New, uh, Norwegian bachelor of farmers in Minnesota. If there are ever people in farming that, that would need to connect their house in the barn you know, for winter passage, it would be Minnesota farmers. But they never connected their farms, and people throughout the uh, the rest of the United States never did. The area, which is a very tight but dense area of connected farm, is really the spine of Vermont, the white the the, the mountains of, of Vermont, the the western slopes in New York, no connected farms, there are very few uh, at all. It dissipates, and so within northern New England, and not outside of that, and so it's the particular agricultural um, organization within New England that has to be explained. Uh, The date that you want to think about is 1820. That's the Erie Canal opens up. So and then and then the railroads take over by 1840. New England is out of it in terms of agricultural production. Poor lands, uh, short growing season, Uh, rocky hillsides. You know, they they, they are not going to make it in the agricultural universe. But they but they do concoct a local markets. Boston and the larger cities of milk and running milk after a while and they, they limp by but they could never establish a cash crop So they have to they have to diversify and this diversification is what you see in the connected farm. If you want to have a diverse agricultural production, a little bit of pigs, a little bit of chickens, a uh, little bit of corn, a little bit of wheat, the connected farm is the ideal s- uh, organ- uh, farmstead organization. It doesn't make sense anybody anywhere else, and in fact, anywhere else it's just you can think of it as a poor farmer way of, of going it, but New England farmers made it for a while. And a symbol of this was this connected farm organization. And the, one of the keys of popular development is that rich farmers can do anything. They can do odd things and develop things, but common farmers, they don't have a lot of... Uh, uh, ability to expand their buildings or something like that, but they could adopt this organization, connecting house and barn by simply moving a couple buildings around and connect and making one little shed longer, and voila, <laughs> they get this new style of doing it, which is always pretty close to their old style, but it has the look of and the reform of agriculture. And they were hammered by the agricultural press. These are proud New Englanders. These are the guys who gave us um abolition i mean they, they, they create the civil war because they, they saw the evils of slavery and they did it and anyway they're proud uh but they get hammered by the rest of the country because of this you know it all uh uh new england attitude as you know as you could live in vermont um there's something about the superiority of intellectual superiority in boston etc so the agricultural press throughout the Late nineteenth century just hammers them for you guys are backward. You guys are falling behind. The rest of the nation is developing single crop archi- uh, uh, agriculture. So New Englanders did reform. This reform was the connected forum. wasn't you know very spectacular, but it but they they stabilized for a while and for about a half century they they made it work um, where everyone else was just you know losing it if you were doing this marginal agriculture of mi- mixed farming.
0: So, and you mentioned. Oh, not at all. Please keep up the elaborate answers. It's great. Uh, you, you had mentioned kind of this uh, proud, you know, purposeful design. And so you bring it up in the book that, you know, a lot of people when they look at it, and I'll admit, even when I was a young architectural intern, I toured tons of these buildings for retrofit projects for a firm I worked for. And they look they look very haphazard. They look kind of just cobbled together. And I think <laughs> Like every- a drunken
1: cow does like a drunken cow designed the buildings, as someone almost <laughs> would have said.
0: Absolutely. And but I think you make the case that quite the opposite. They're actually very purposefully designed. They're not quaint buildings. They're almost progressive for their time and there's a lot of purposeful design in how they do things.
1: If you think about an existing farmstead with a bunch of different kinds of buildings, I I say that they whitened, they straightened, and they cleaned up their farmstead during the late 19th century, during this time of connected farm building. A very interesting architectural project of unifying the farmstead. One of the key architectural elements that we don't find elsewhere is they put the architectural style of the house in diluted form onto the rest of the buildings, including the barn. Nobody else does this, you know, An Iowa farmers, you know, fix up their barns, but they would not make the mistake of making the house ha 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 look like, or detailed with the style of the barn. Ha ha ha. So um, but the New Englanders did because this is unified ensemble of buildings that worked as a unified whole made sense for their small agricultural operations did not make sense um, for Norwegian bachelor farmers in Minnesota And they never connected their farms
0: or anything like that. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, you bring up the two things I'd love to talk about for our listeners is the idea of frontality and dissipation. You know, again, kind of that stigma that it was put, it was cobbled together by poor farmers when you, but these two concepts are, I won't say advanced, but there's very, there's a lot of intentional thought into it. In the literature of the period,
1: they they architecturally they they developed the terms convenience and beauty, and and that is that it must be functional and all that, but also beautiful. There's a component of beauty, or and a farmer would never use the word beauty. <laughs> it's not just a farmer word, but they understand what they, the, the way they plant their trees on the roadside, the uh, the organization of the farmstead. Um, uh, so. Uh, the beauty of this system is individual farmers, you know, take their squadron of, of buildings and unify them together. The offset is interesting um, because the way they're jagged and they, they seem to be, um, there are different buildings. When you connect different buildings together, if you slot them together end to end, they don't fit. I mean, there's, So the offset is the, is the conjunction of buildings which are different to each other and they, they kind of unify it all, all together. There is a beauty in that, and then some of these are are incredibly beautiful creations, uh, very unified architectural creations that any of us would say, nice job.
0: so you actually, and so uh, you make the point. Assuming I didn't misunderstand, that you know, often there is a lot of unification, but there is also juxtaposition of the forms. They are could be different material. They could be purposely offset, offset. But I, you, if I understood, you make the claim that this could be purposeful, almost like an anti-city, proud New Englander's defiance. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Well, uh, I wouldn't use the term anti. Say, I mean, if all farmers have <laughs>
0: their issues with urbanization,
1: urban places, and things like that. Um, they 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 are aware, and and they use the styles of, of the architectural styles, of the Greek Revival, and other architectural uh, coming from, I would say, urban urban areas, to um, unify their farmsteads together. There's no. Uh, uh, indigenous uh, folkness of, of, about the but the, the entire ensemble i i think would be developed in a farm from a farm perspective so a combination of city um uh, or urban um intellectual ideas plus good old farming functional ideas all in a kind of beautiful balance mix
0: and so you had mentioned you know like i said at first you know it was challenged that you know these aren't haphazard there's very a ele- And so a question I have is, you know, for example, they have three principles for siting, you know, facade of the barn and the house face the road. They protect from the wind for the dooryard, and that the barn is near the south in the field. That with a few other things, there does seem to be a very strict almost uh, manifesto of design in all your research. I mean, did you come across any standard literature or was this just kind of ingrained knowledge that everyone had?
1: Um, I would say it's in, uh, Traditions of agricultural um, uh, settlement patterns, both uh, uh, distance from the road, um, uh, and of course, a whole lot depends on the farmer's holdings. Um, what these farmers dominantly chose was the upper slopes of gently rolling hills. Better land was in the valleys, but more more glacial boulders in New England and all that. New England quickly, the, the lowlands of the intervals, uh, delta, uh, uh, river valleys, were quickly settled. A very small, <laughs> torturously small uh, percentage of New England is flat and, and, and farming, like the, continue, uh, the valleys of uh, the Connecticut River there, um, or the, the rich lands along there. But the most of it is just rocky and hillsides. Well, they chose these upper levels uh, of, of gently sloping hills. And if you ride New England, you'll go up and down. But when you reach the crest of a hill, often you'll find, you know, three or four old elms. <laughs> no farmstead. That was where a farmstead was on, on the tops of hills. So anyway, there's local traditions about where you site farms. But then there are local traditions of where buildings are sited So in relation to the farm Early Massachusetts history and, and into New England, you'll find the house and the barn are separated by great distances. You'd think the Indians and all that would make them close together, but the house and the barn are way far apart. It comes gradually together in the 19th century, um, but then there are local traditions of how you around a, a barn where uh, milk houses later, but where an ice house would have been in the back, uh, be uh, on the backside of the cool side of, of the barn, uh, the, the pigsty pig would be in the cellar to, to mix the agriculture. So there are local traditions of how you concoct the buildings and the farmstead in terms of its uh, m- multi-crop, multi-agricultural production, which is the kind of key. Remember in Iowa, they, they in 1840, they went, Hogs and corn. Today they do hogs and corn. Okay. And and they never did that in New England. They could never get a cash crop. I said the Erie Canal, uh, that's 1820. By 1838, by 1840, they could not grow their main cash crop, wheat. It's gone. I mean, it, they could go it, but they couldn't sell it very, very easily because it, because the Western farmers are, are are bulking it in on the Erie Canal and and soon the railway. They could never compete, so they cobbled together this mixed farming um, agriculture operation, and they you know sustained it for a while.
0: And so you brought up a few specific uh, what you call outbuildings, you know, small single use structures that weren't attached to the the the, co- the connected farm. And correct, and so same. Th- and I guess there's a great diagram in the book that sadly our viewers can't see unless they get the book. But that same thing, I know a lot of times when you tour a farm, it looks like these things are just kind of dotted around the landscape. But again, there's a case to be made that there's actually kind of a a logic to where certain buildings are placed based on trial error and just kind of tradition. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Uh, as you trudle across as a person from away tours across the landscapes and looks at these buildings they might look haphazard today you see rare examples of of a building that had that a farm that has all its existing outbuildings so they've all disappeared usually but photographs you can then then see what they were but you might think of a kind of a zone of areas where they would be located relative to their you know production and, and, and all that um uh, the, the Farmer's Garden, uh, probably on the west side. There's a geographic organization of these two in relation to the road. Um, one of the key kind of environmental layouts of this Connected Farm Organization is that you, you develop a south-facing dooryard. The dooryard is the yard to the kitchen door. There's a dooryard to uh-huh. the front door in order. And so they, uh, developed the, far- the Connected Farm developed, I would say, between the 1850 um, 18- 1840 to 1900, but really the 50 years of the 80 to 90 percent of connected farms were built or dragged into line in a connected farm organization during this 50-year period between 1850 and 1900.
0: Again, another common theme, I know in uh, your last book there was quite a few, uh, we'll call them romantic stories that me and a lot of other people assumed that you challenged, and this one had one for me as well, and that is, I think it's from movies, there's kind of this picture that farmers used to just let their animals roam because there wasn't a lot of buildings, so they just kind of, you know, there was no fencing, there were no fields, whereas I think kind of the opposite is kind of brought up in this book.
1: Yes. Uh, you, you might, If you have agricultural animals and crops, <laughs> you can't mix them, but... Uh, the basic formula, and it's not just for these farmers, but farmers the, in other areas too. If that had mixed animals and crops, many farmers just have crops, or they just have animals and and, and pasture or something like that. But New England farmers, because they have to do it all, you got to keep them separate. Uh, if some of you have in New England have heard of the cow path, you'll you'll heard of that from the barn. Often a Stone walls, a lot of stones, and the best thing you can do with them is make walls out of them. But if you look at the early picture, the stone, the stone walls are a combination of, st- of growing stone wall because ha- they had to work years and centuries to, to create these walls. Um, you put a wood uh, structure on top of it, just lumber in some ways, and, and it's a kind of a growing wall of that, but absolutely necessary. You cannot have your crop, your, your grazing animals go out into your cornfield. <laughs> there goes your profit. So, um, the, uh, fencing systems are absolutely part of of, of early New England farming, um, and become more important as both their diversity of uh, livestock uh, and all that um, and uh, crops uh, have to be f- fenced. The usual, if you make a map uh, of a farm, you'll find that the best growing lands, the best fertilized lands, will be closest to the barn, where you get the fertilizer. Uh-huh. The cow manure usually, again, it's a mixed farming system. So they milk cows and they have fertilizer from, from the cows and the hogs mix it um, and, and, and all that. that. That's not the way a Midwest farm works that goes big time in hogs and corn or something like that. All farmers have, have small side operations, but New England farmers could not get a single cash, cash crop. Mixed farming made sense to them. That's why the connected farm makes sense to them also.
0: So that would also make the case for, because there is a dedicated space for a workroom, you're saying that because they couldn't just grow a crop, they had to do blacksmithing or some kind of woodworking or something on the side.
1: Blacksmith's a little uh, a boutique. I mean, it requires a little more skill and all that, but lots of farmers would work with leather and uh, or skin leather, um, uh, tanning uh, type, of, type of things. Or So the wives are part of this very... A mixed farming operation. They often have a uh, home industry, uh, shoe leathers from uh, sewing shoes from uh, Lowell factories and things like that. It was a very um, well researched one and all that. But they would also be part of this. Uh, they would also have chores that made money, and so uh, you can look look at the uh, the range of, the, of those in, in various literatures.
0: And so it's an. Int- I have a question from that. I'd like to come back to the fence at some point, but. I know you would mentioned that you know, a big chunk of your research was looking at photographs because just these buildings don't exist. There's not a lot of drawings and documentation. And I believe you make the point in the book that uh, while there's plenty of pictures of men doing their chores, there's very few of women. And so I guess the question I have, not architecturally, is how how would you go about researching that side of the farm family?
1: Um, there's was growing research about women's women studies. Uh, mostly it's colonial kitchen. Um, or oriented in some ways, but but there is, is various research about the women's work on the farm. It's clearly the, the least documented in some ways. Farm diaries are usually a male preserve, and so a couple of spectacular diaries that I used uh, from Kennybank area um, Walker diaries um, were three generations of males <laughs> writing every day in in their diary, and and there are lots of normal diaries. You know, hogs and chicken went to town and bought some chickens. You know, December thirty first, um, and so, but we don't have female diaries. Well, there are few, but but very few um, relative to the male. So that source of research. This was typical of women's documentations. Uh, either spurned by males, or in this case, just not done on the farm um, as the male farm. The, the the farm diary is part of a. Uh, of an intellectual uh, tradition, I would say, of recording just scientifically um, all the purchases and all that uh, of of the farm, which many farmers did a little bit uh, as part of their uh, effort to um, make it in farming
0: uh,
1: as a component of of their uh, development.
0: Very interesting. And so I did mention I wanted to come back to the fencing, and I don't have a good segue from that conversation. Uh, you know, anyone who's practicing architecture, or in fact anyone who owns a house and has dealt with a neighbor with when it comes to trees is no stranger to fence dispute, property lines, etc. And so am I you had you had mentioned in the book that uh, you know there's a lot of fencing and there's a lot of field boundaries, and a lot of town halls were kind of dedicated to the debating of property lines. Am I understanding that even back then people were disputing their neighbors' boundary lines? That's
1: that's there. It, it isn't. I mean, that the spectacular dis- disputes always arise to the occasion more but in my purview of of average farmers. That uh, that was not a major a major issue. Um, you know, usually at the periphery of your property is is the least worked land, the most leftover woodlands, or something like that. So and the establishment of rock walls <laughs> talk about a permanent line i mean once that's there mm-hmm. it isn't that this this uh, uh, you need a surveyor to come by or something like that so anyway i find a lot less of that than whatever you've heard about uh in some ways throughout throughout new england about those lines i mean these are small farms that that you know, that uh, are difficult in any circumstances, but but there's a couple of usually generations of, uh, of farms here, and so that would have been well worked out after the initial settlement, uh, in, in most cases.
0: Well, great. So, unfortunately, just like last time, you know, we only scratched the surface. I would recommend everyone pick it up. But uh, so, a question I had for you last time, and I have all guesses, you know, usually is what what have you worked on since the book came out? The question I have for this though is, I mean, this is the twentieth anniversary, however. You know what? Have you continued this research since the books come out? I mean, is there more you've added to this?
1: Well, it's actually we're we're approaching the the, the, for the twentieth. We did our twentieth anniversary, uh, and I put a preface in there. But the the 40th is is coming up. Is that right? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Also, um, we have about fifty thousand, more than fifty thousand books sold. So um, I'm kind of proud of that. you know, an old barn book. um, uh, That's that's pretty high numbers for. a book like that and I, I mentioned this I mean it's a kind of ego gloat and all that but I mentioned this because there's still people skeptical of my more intellectual definition of, of these you know the connected farms weren't you know the, the winter of passage and all of that I can just say that these numbers of um, and I've lectured for uh, hundreds of, of, of lectures throughout New England if this this was a wrong idea I mean seriously wrong this this would would have been flayed <laughs> this would have been burnt up so much long ago uh incredible because of the exposure of of this idea you know had a major had a small minority done something else we would certainly have found out about that um so anyway my I would just say that i'm very pleased that the idea has been vetted (laughs) thoroughly in some ways. Um, And I'm kind of proud of that. Um, It doesn't mean that I'm absolutely right about everything or anything like that, but uh, that's been rewarding um, for its length and um, uh, width of of its exposure to many hundreds of thousands of of people.
0: Great. And so obviously vernacular architecture is a theme we've talked about in your other book. Uh, you know, I know that you have other books we introduced at the beginning. I mean, is that a subject you've covered in those other books as well?
1: I, th- this is really what we have here is the popular architecture of most farmers in northern New England. So it's that's what's popular about that. My other books are, uh, the popular architecture of uh, what I call the middle majority of Americans, uh, middle fifty percent, not the upper twenty to thirty percent, not not the lower uh, working class twenty uh, to thirty percent, but a. Uh, large middle majority and then what did most people live in most of the time what what did they how do they improve so that's i do this with farmers in new england and then i do this with <laughs> the americans of uh, uh, relative to housing improvement in the early 20th century
0: well great well i want to thank you for being on here once again with me I enjoyed it
1: i'm starting my my research uh uh, tours again i'm gonna after covid i'm I'm getting lectures to go back and talk about this in
0: new england villages well that's exciting yes it is and for everyone listening the book is big house little house back house barn you have to try to say it without singing but thank you for listening and thank you and have a great day thank you very much good day